The following episode contains material that may be harmful or traumatizing to some audiences. Listener discretion is advised. It was Monday morning, April 15th, 2013. Patriot's Day in Boston. A holiday recognized the third Monday of every April to commemorate the start of the American Revolution. It's also the same day the annual Boston Marathon is held. Mark Fucarell had no intention of going to the day's events, until a friend reached out. I had never been to a Boston Marathon. I just never wanted to be in that crowded environment. I just didn't appeal to me, gave me anxiety. I always fear the worst, like thinking, like stuff's gonna happen, you know, and I'm always looking over my shoulder. Just I was always taught growing up to be aware of my situation, aware of my environment. So what compelled you to go that time? There was a buddy of mine that he graduated a year below me or a couple years below me, Mike Jefferson. Yeah, he was a Marine. So that relationship with Mike J is what brought me to the marathon. JP, buddy of mine, called me and he said, what are you doing tomorrow? We're going to the marathon. I said, now nah, I'm all set. I'm good. You know me. I, I don't go. And he's like, well, Mike J's running in honor of guys that he served with. And I said, oh, OK, well, I'm going to go then. I'm going to support Mike J. Mark and his buddies met at JP's apartment where they had a quick drink before his friend Stevie B drove the group to Boston. We all piled in his truck. We get to the right location, we park, and then we have to walk. And we walked all the way to go meet JP's brother, Paul, and his girlfriend. It was there that Mark expressed his fear. Or was it a premonition? We were walking by the Heinz Convention Center on Boylston, and Stevie B made a comment. Said, this is awesome. This is great. Look at all these people. I, I can't believe it. Like, this is, I never, you know, why haven't I ever came? And I was like, dude, this is horrible. He's like, what do you mean? I'm like, it's like shooting fish in a barrel. I'm like, anybody here could just, you know, pull out a gun and start shooting. And they're going to hit somebody because there's so many people. He's like, oh my God. And I said, even like a backpack. I'm like, what if somebody had a bomb in a backpack? Dead honest. This is crazy. JP will never let me live it down. I said, I didn't say somebody did. I just said, that's what my fears are. Like, I'm afraid of that. We're interrupting your program because there have been two explosions today at the Boston Marathon. Two explosions near the finish line. Two homemade pressure cooker bombs stuffed in backpacks detonated 14 seconds and just over 200 yards apart, killing three people, injuring hundreds, and leading law enforcement on a four-day manhunt. From Cast Media, this is Media Circus, an inside look at private tragedy in the public eye. I take high-profile crimes you might think you know and connect you with the real people behind the media coverage to share their stories, in their own words, on their own terms. I'm Kim Goldman. Mark Fucarell was born in Stoneham, Massachusetts, the youngest of three siblings raised by a single mom. He was engaged to his longtime girlfriend with whom he shared a five-year-old son, Gavin. Mark had big plans. I was working for Marshall Roofing and Sheet Metal. I was actually taking real estate classes the weekends before the bombing because I was going to actually get out of the roofing business and get back to school and sell real estate and work on setting up and opening up my own nonprofit organization, Boss Street Music at the time. Opportunity for focused students to reach endless education through music, working with the Boys and Girls Club of America out of Woburn, Mass. Oh. So, yeah, that was my goal. My son's mother had just finished her nursing school. So she graduated, got a job at the hospital. So she was a 
licensed RN at the time. That was pretty much right up to the bombing. The morning of April 15th, Mark took his son to daycare at the Goddard School. It was the day of the teddy bear picnic, a special day for Gavin, and he was excited to go. After dropping him off and running a few errands, Mark and his buddies headed into Boston. They found a spot to watch their friend run on Boylston Street in front of the Forum restaurant. Everybody's getting hungry. We're trying to figure out where we're going to go eat. And then that's when the first bomb went off. We all looked to our left towards the finish line, and it was bad. You could see how big and how damaging the blast was and the smoke, the dust and fire that was so high. And then a buddy of ours jumped the fence and said, get away from the building. And then the bomb went off. It took my right leg instantly, mangled JP's foot, Paul's leg. The explosions were absolutely devastating. Three people were killed instantly. Eight-year-old Martin Richard, 23-year-old Chinese exchange student Lingzi Liu, and 29-year-old Crystal Campbell. 17 people lost limbs and hundreds were injured from the blast. Martin Richard passed away right in our area. His little sister, Jane, she lost her leg. Roseanne Sedoya was next to me. She lost her leg. There was quite a few amputees that day at our location. Steve Wolferman, his young boy, was in a carriage. He got carried away by the police officers. Lindsay Liu passed away at our bombing, the foreign exchange student. Adrian lost her leg. She was closer to the forum and crawled in. People, strangers, leaped into action to help the injured. Mark was actually in flames. I was in and out of consciousness, and Kayla Quinn was an off-duty nurse from Mass General. She actually stepped over me because she thought I had passed and was trying to help Lindsay Liu, but there were so many people trying to help her, she couldn't get in. So she turned back around and I was trying to sit up and she just pushed me down and she's like, you gotta stay down. And she put a tourniquet on me. And then she screamed, oh shit, he's still on fire. And then I panicked, burnt my hand, getting my belt buckle off to get the rest of what was left of my jeans. I only had Daisy Dukes on at that point because the blast literally disintegrated my clothes. I just remember a lot of yelling and screaming and just seeing a lot of gray. And when I looked up, I was like, oh shit, they got me because I could see the same cloud of smoke that I witnessed further down at the finish line. Yeah, I just kept telling them I don't want to die. I just want to see my boy. You know, I've got a little boy at home. I just want to get home to him. And they were just talking to me. Like, so amazing. These people were just so calm, but not calm, but knew what they were doing. My whole body was in shock. I wasn't screaming, crying, yelling, nothing. They were just trying to keep me alive, talking to me. And, you know, I thought somebody was sitting on me because of the weight on my chest, but it was actually people holding me from sitting up. Kayla was holding me down. So with the ears ringing, my eardrums were blown out of my head. Right? So I had holes. I had no eardrums. So everybody sounded muffled like we were underwater. And everybody sounded like a guy. Like, it just sounded like a man. So I thought it was a guy that was helping me. Firefighters arrived to help get Mark and the others ready for transport. They neck braced me. They put me on a backboard. And the guy was trying to tell me, hold on, I got an ambulance. We're going to get you in an ambulance. And he was yelling, stop, stop. And um, they didn't stop. And he was like, why aren't they stopping? And then I heard another voice say, well, they're full. They're full. 
and he's like, oh, we got another one. Stop, stop. And he's like, Mark, I got an ambulance. Stop, stop. And they didn't stop. And he's like, I won't tell you again until I know. So he was calling it in, and they were saying, yeah, 16 minutes. And uh, they said, well, he's not going to make 16 minutes. So the f- cop happened, Jimmy Davis ended up coming over. He's like, why don't we put him in my paddy wagon? I'm like, well, how many can you take? And he's like, I don't know, like two. So they go, I grab him, grab her. They picked me up, and then they picked up Roseanne Sedoya. And they stuck me and Roseanne in the back with two firefighters. And Shana, another Boston police officer, jumped in and helped and took three minutes to get from Boylston Street to Mass General. Jimmy Davis drove like an animal. As Mark arrived at Massachusetts General Hospital, his fiance frantically tried to reach him. My phone rang while we were backing in because they had shut down cell service so nobody could call. Her friend said, hey, something happened at the marathon and you should try to get a hold of Mark. And she's like, oh, shit. So she called my phone and they actually put my phone on my chest and I had my phone on my hands and I was holding it and it rang. I looked at it and I handed it to the the firefighter and he's like, ma'am, Mark's been hurt. You need to get to Mass General. And she's like, ha, 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 real funny. Put Mark on the phone. She thought it was a friend of mine joking with her. And he goes, it's not a joke. You got to get to Mass General. I have to go. We're pulling him out of the paddy wagon now. And hung up the phone and said, don't answer that. And the doors opened and it was just, well, I saw was people. And that was the last thing I remember. I feel like it's important for people to understand the severity of your trauma. It sounds like you are as well. So if I'm going to ask you just bluntly, like, can you just list for me the specific injuries that you endured? So my face had second degree burns. Uh, my eyebrows, my hair, my cheeks, like in the right sunlight, you'll see the discoloration from my skin, from the fire. My lips were burnt second degree. I have nails and BBs living through my body all over. I got them in my pelvis. I got roofing nails in my bicep from the blast. I mean, you can't see, but I have all these scars from all the BBs and they're pulling them out of my arm. So you have shrapnel still? Oh, yeah. They can't get it all out. It's, it's probably well over. 30, 40 pieces at least in me. So I lost my right leg above the knee. My left leg from my knee to my ankles, 100% skin graft all the way around because the skin was blown off and burnt off. My foot, a hole about the size of a golf ball in my heel went about the size. You could have put a golf ball in the hole and then the blast just disintegrated everything inside my foot. Like it separated all the bones and the ligaments. So they had to resurgically put back my whole foot, put the bones back in place, pin all the te- you know tendons. I had a blast wound in my left thigh where it went in, and then it blew up. Like so, it goes in a small hole, and then the explosion just kills everything inside. So they had to cut me open, debris a whole area about the size of a football, take all that out of my left thigh. I lost the, one of the main arteries in my left leg, just. <laughs> rolled up into my butt, gone, separated, no connecting it again. Then I have shrap metal in my heart. It went up through my artery from my right leg is the only way they can say they think it went. But it could have went from my left artery and they weren't sure. Like on my left leg, the artery in my left leg and took a ride up and it lodged in my right atrium. So it was a small piece in there that they monitor and they watch it to make sure because the body's going to push it out and reject it. Or if it comes free, it'll go into my lungs. And it could tear a ripple puncture into my lungs. I had a brain injury, traumatic brain injury. 
my eardrums, I went through one ear surgery. They took a piece of skin graft from your armpit and they stretch over your ear. They cut your ear off, they pull it out, and they put the eardrum on and they put your ear back. That was probably actually one of the worst surgeries. I got so sick from that, my equilibrium was all thrown off. Like every time I sat up, I'd like faint, pass out. I was all messed up. Physical therapy was really tough because of that. Between hospitals, rehab, and endless surgeries, Mark was in medical facilities for years and still to this day continues to fight. Mark has been taken to the operating room 16 times for a total of 49 different surgical procedures. And today marks his 100th day in the hospital. I was on ICU for a long time, then I was in the burn unit. I was in Mass General for 45 days. They never should have released me when they did. I should have been there for another 45 days. But instead, they promised me I wouldn't leave Mass General with any open wounds. Well, I left Mass General and went over to Spalding Rehab in Charlestown with three wound vacs, which the wound vacs are open wounds, and they're trying to heal from the inside out, and you change these gauzes, and you have these pumps sucking fluid. Uh, I had three of them, two on my left foot, one on my right leg, my stump, because I was amputated right through the knee. And um, I've actually had five revisions, but I had four in the hospital because they kept sending me back and forth. I kept getting infections and kept getting from Spalding back to Mass General, have a day surgery, and then go back to Spalding. I couldn't stay at Mass General or I'd lose my bed at Spalding. <laughs> it was absolutely bizarre. You know, a lot of people say that, like, your body doesn't forget trauma. And so listening to you, is it hard for you to tell the story the way that you do? Or is it helpful and healing? Is it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's great to talk about stuff. I think everybody should talk, get it off your chest. I just believe in that energy releasing from your body and talking about it, I think, is a great thing. While Mark was fighting for his life in those first days, the hunt was on for suspects. Three days after the bombing, the FBI published surveillance photos on its website. A full-scale digital manhunt is underway, record-setting web traffic jammed FBI.gov after they released photos and surveillance video of two suspects in the Boston Marathon bombings. They are now the world's most wanted men. Two men in their 20s, caught on tape. Suspect number one with a black cap. Suspect number two with a white cap worn backwards, both wearing backpacks that the FBI believes held the bombs. The photos were of brothers Tamerlan and Jahar Sanayev. It was three days after the bombing that the brothers would head back to their apartment, grab explosive devices, a machete, a gun, and ammunition. They then arrive at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where they try to steal a gun from MIT police officer Sean Collier. He was shot in the head, and died instantly. Oh my goodness. All units, respond. Officer down. Officer down. The brothers then carjacked a Mercedes at gunpoint while bragging to the driver that they were responsible for the bombing. 911. Please have, have me, please. They have guns. Where are they? They're in the Hill gas station. Memorial Drive. They're in front of the gas station? Yeah. I just wrong. I just wrong. I just Before ultimately engaging in a shootout with police in Watertown, Massachusetts using a pressure cooker bomb and pipe bombs. We need assistance immediately. We reported shots fired at officer shots fired at Watertown police officers. The older brother Tamerlan was killed, shot multiple times before being run over by his younger brother while trying to get away. It seems as though Jahar probably 
killed his older brother accidentally by running over him. Is that your understanding of what happened? Uh, he ran over his brother, um, and he was alive before he got run over, before he was run over. Jahar escaped. We want to take you live right now to Watertown, Massachusetts. That's where police are looking for suspect number two. He's on the right side of your screen. He is the one with the baseball cap on, the white one, backwards. 7 a.m., police began a door-to-door search in Watertown, ordering residents to shelter in place. Later that day, a resident discovers Jahar hiding in a boat parked in his yard. Police fire grenades and weapons, ordering him to come out with his hands up. He was taken into custody. The rest of us, we were watching this unfold. You know, you couldn't have scripted what had happened. And to understand how hard everybody was looking to to get these guys, the bombers. Was there ever a point that you were like, wait, what the fuck? Like, what the fuck happened? So when I was in ICU, and I was able to kind of talk, the FBI came in and showed me the videotape. So... I got a really good understanding. I got to watch it over and over the surveillance camera of what happened. And they asked me, who's this? Who's that? What did you say to him? Because the guy actually bumped me three times, the younger brother. He was right to my right. And I wanted to utilize the tree that he was standing in front of as kind of like a shield. Because people bump you and it's crowded. I was just trying to use that as a shield. He didn't want me near that tree. So he like gave me a shoulder. You know, and I said, all right, that's cool. Back up again. He gives me another bump. I said, all right, this is how it's going to be. So he bumped me again. I turned around. I said, dude, I said, don't fucking bump me. I said, don't bump me again. And I tapped my buddy, JP, and I said, this dude, and I pointed over my shoulder, and I said, this dude bumps me one more time. I'm going to lose my shit. And uh, JP goes, well, knock him out. And I said, what? I said, yeah, we're at the marathon, like, how am I going to knock them out? Like this family's here. And Hey, I'm not a fighter. Like I can't knock on anybody. I mean, I can fight and I'm always willing to fight if I have to, but I'm not Rocky Balboa by any means. Me hitting is like getting hit by a fly. That was only 160 pounds. You know, I could take a beating. I just couldn't give too many. Um, <laughs> Seems like that's usual. <laughs> the FBI agent says, well, what did you say to him? I said, Oh, that guy. I said, oh, I told him stop bumping me. And he's like, Oh, really? Do you know who he is? I said, no, I have no idea who he is. And, you know, because they kept, they kept rewinding. They didn't show the blowing up part yet. They just kept, they just kept showing the us walking up, us setting up in front of the restaurant, and then him walking up. And then, like, but they didn't tell me who he was yet. They kept showing that part right before the bomb blew up. And they just kept showing that part. And they kept stopping it, saying, who's he? Who's he? Who's that guy? I'm like, I don't know him. I don't know her. I know him. That's, you know, Steve. That's Jimmy. That's Paul. That's JP. That's me. I don't know who that is. I don't know who that is. And like, well, you're talking to him. Who's he? I'm like, I don't know who he is. I'm like, and then they kept showing it. I'm like, and then when I, I realized when I pointed over my shoulder, I was like, that's the guy that bumped me. Because I watched in the video me pointing over my shoulder. And then they continued to show the video. They asked me if you want to see it. And I said, yeah, I want to see it. I want to see what happened. You know, and I kept showing. I kept getting to see it. How was that for you to see that over and over again? People saw the scene. No one saw this video footage from that surveillance camera that we got to see. To me, it just happened. You know, I'm alive, so it didn't phase me to see it because I'm like, oh, you know, that's what happened. That's how it went down. Okay, cool. Like, that person did this. That person did that. And that, I mean, that was what's amazing looking at 
pictures from the scenes and other video and other angles is seeing all the people that ran into the danger to help. I mean, I just can't get that image out of my head that these complete strangers ran into danger to help us. And then all the people that helped us after, like that supported us financially, fundraising, just sending prayers, thoughts, gifts, cards, anything and everything. It just blew my mind, like totally blew my mind. Almost immediately after the bombing, Bostonians and others from around Massachusetts and the world sprung into action. I saw so much good, like people's cards, people were making like knitted hats, knitted scarves, blankets, like they were custom making quilts. There was people sending them letters from churches, letters from elementary school kids. I mean, it never, ever stopped. We had visitors from the Red Sox. We had visitors from the Celtics, Patriots. We had just groups of people coming in to visit. Semper Fi Fund, I mean, God bless them. The Marines that came in that were amputees that spoke with our families to tell our families that they would be there for us. They'll help us, they'll guide us. They gave us money, they wrote checks to help move us from our house to our handicap accessible apartment. And then like the Greg Hill Foundation was popping up with checks. Here, pay your bills, pay this, family eat, like blah, 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 blah. Like so many people were just helping. And it was just like, this is awesome. You know, like I saw the worst, and but I'm seeing a hell of a lot more good. It was two weeks before Mark could see his five-year-old son, Gavin. My son did come in. I had a feeding tube up my nose. My hands were all burnt. They were all bandaged up. So he did come in and he got to hug me and lay with me. And my, me and my son were together every day. I drove him to and from daycare because his mother worked overnight shift as a nurse. So he went from seeing me every day to not seeing me for two weeks. Did he understand what was happening? He had no clue. No, it was just, he, he was wicked, very upset, really upset, distraught about it. You know, when I woke up, I saw that fear on my family's face and it was bad. It affected my family worse than it probably affected me. But the pain was so bad. Like they had be on so many drugs, I'd stop breathing, painkillers. They gave me so much and I was still in so much pain. But they're like, we can't give you any more. So what they did was they they went to an epidural. I think it was two or three epidurals because they can only leave them in for so long. Then they have to pull them out. Then they put another one back in and then leave it in as long as they could. Because I was going into surgery every other day. I was in such bad shape I couldn't even function for weeks. Months after the bombing, while Mark was in the rehab hospital, he was surprised by an unexpected guest. My family reached out and they said, there's a young lady that would like to talk to you. She said she was with you on the side of Boylston Street. and She's the one that put the tourniquet on you. You know, a lot of crazy cuckoos came out of the woodwork. People claimed they did a whole bunch of stuff. People like, oh, my husband lost an arm. I'm like, that's interesting. I've never met anybody that lost an arm at the marathon. But not saying somebody didn't, but I've pretty much met all most of the survivors, especially amputees. But, okay, this girl wanted to talk to me, wanted to meet me. It's like funny how she's coming out so many months later. It was Kayla Quinn, a nurse practitioner who told Mark she was there with him the day of the bombing. And there was a reason that she didn't show up for months. Well, there was so much blood. She was covered as a nurse. Like they give you this medication to protect you from getting AIDS or HIV or hepatitis, all these different diseases. And she took allergic reaction to it and she almost died herself. So she was tied up in the hospital just like as long as I was. So 
we thought maybe she's cuckoo, maybe she's not. And I said, you know what? The heck, I'll meet her. You know, see what she has to say. So we met outside of Spalding Rehab. Like they were able to take me out. We met and we were talking. And she said, I just like to apologize first about making you panic. I'm a nurse. I know better. Like I shouldn't have said, oh shit, you're on fire. Because you panicked. And I totally made you freak out. And I shouldn't have done that. That's so unprofessional of me. I was like, lady, I don't care what you said. You saved my life. Because that was when I knew, because I had never told anybody that this person said, oh, shit, he's still on fire. When you met Kayla, what did you say to her? Thank you. I mean, obviously, she's like, yeah, my angel. And if it wasn't for her, I definitely wouldn't be here right now. Like, 100% shouldn't be here at all. Shortly after, a gentleman came up with these photos, this photographer. And in the photo... The reassurance was there. You could see her working on me. And I was like, see? I'm like, it's 100% definite. It definitely was her. There was actually one gentleman in another couple pictures that was standing over me. Never found him. He didn't want to be found. I think that sometimes, you know, that's the beauty of what people do in the face of adversity. They just step up, they act, and then they move on. And they don't need the recognition. And, and Yeah. So Kayla's like that. She just wanted to meet me and see that I was okay. Cause she was having a hard time processing what she witnessed. I mean, nobody's prepared to see that, that environment that we were in body parts on the ground, missing limbs, people split in half, intestines hanging out of the, the young Asian girl. Her belly was just wide open. Not the one that passed. She actually lived. They actually stuffed her stuff back in and they were holding it. It was, uh, it was wild. Even after Mark was released from the hospital, he was struggling daily. And I was doing it back and forth from the hospital on a daily basis from my house to the hospital. I did that for about a year, on and off for a year. Then I spent another year trying to find other doctors to fix my left leg because I couldn't weight bear and fix my right leg because I couldn't wear a prosthetic leg for more than 15 minutes without blistering and pain. So I was unsuccessful at finding anybody that would do anything different because now it became all voluntary, like... I'm alive, I'm good. Like, oh, everything he did, that's what we would have done. Well, finally, the doctors down at Walter Reed Medical Facility, a physical therapist and occupational therapist took pictures of my situation when I was skiing at Breckenridge, Colorado. And they gave it to their doctors. And their doctor said, we need to help this kid. So they reached out to me. So unfortunately, during the trial thing, I was back and forth trying to get into Walter Reed. And then I did get into Walter Reed. I was there from April of 2015 to April of 2016. So I had to come back and forth for the trial. So when I testified for the death penalty part of the trial. But for the majority of the trial, I was down having surgeries getting rebuilt. January 5th, 2015. Jahar Sarnayev pleads not guilty to all 30 charges against him. Although his attorney admits in her opening statement that her client committed the acts. Three months later, he was found guilty on all 30 counts. And the jury has now found Sarnayev guilty on the first of 30 counts on which he is facing. That count is using a weapon of mass destruction resulting in death. This is a charge that carries the potential of a death penalty. Do you remember your reaction when he was found guilty? The days I did get to sit sit through the trial, and see the evidence proposed, I already knew. Like, I mean, I knew just by the video. The video footage itself shows him, drops it, boom, 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 bang, done. Like, it's a case, it's rap. Like, if he's not found guilty on every charge, then something's wrong with our justice system. 
seeing the laptop, the CD evidence that he had, the text messages from his friends. So nobody even really realized that there were three individuals that went to his room and took all the evidence and disposed of it. Those three people knew the day it happened that it was them two, and they didn't tell anybody. Three of Sarnayev's college friends, after seeing him on the news, went into his dorm and got rid of his laptop, as well as a backpack filled with fireworks that had the black powder scooped out. The three friends of the Boston bombers were led to jail in shackles late Wednesday after appearing in Boston federal court. Rebel Filibos, Dias Kutterbayov, and Ozma Tzayakov, seen here posing in this photo with Johar last year, are now facing charges of obstruction of justice and making false statements to the FBI. Each received a prison sentence between three and six years. Those three guys are out there. I mean, Officer Collier never would have been killed. The other cop that died a year later from his injuries in Watertown, he never would have died. The other guy wouldn't have been kidnapped. These kids would have been caught, right? I mean, they could have saved two police officers' life, these three guys, and they didn't speak up. They, they had their text message. Oh, my God, they did it. Can you believe it? Blah, 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 blah. And then they took the evidence and got rid of it, these three guys. They, Literally, you have text messages from, you have video footage of all the stuff that they disposed of. I think they should have went a lot harder than they did. While Sarnayev's friends were let off easy, Sarnayev himself was sentenced to death. That is, until the U.S. Court of Appeals vacated that sentence, ordering a new trial. But in a surprising twist, the U.S. Supreme Court reinstated that sentence in March 2022. So do you have feelings about that specifically. Yeah, 100%. Massachusetts, you know, criminals win every time, right? So you have the appeals board that didn't want the death penalty to begin with in Massachusetts. So I already knew this and people already informed me that this was how it was going to happen. They were going to find him guilty, federally go after the death penalty. They're going to get him guilty. The Massachusetts, there was going to be an appeal. Of course, Massachusetts doesn't want the death penalty. So their judges were going to say, yep, throw it out. It's done. And I already mentally prepared for that. Right. Because why should a criminal actually pay? Why should there be consequences for their actions? Unfortunately, that is where a certain group of individuals, left, right, Democrat, Republican, conservative, whatever, whatever you think, there's a certain group that believes that criminals should have more rights than victims. And they want to show and make it known that there are no consequences for any of your bad actions. So I was prepared for that to happen. And then, surprisingly, the Supreme Court, which kind of not surprisingly, but surprisingly, reinstated it. But again, it's kind of like a slap in the face because this administration has a freeze on any federal death sentences. So he won't even be committed. So it's a joke. It's like, yeah, oh, we're going to put you to death. Haha, just joking. We're really not going to. We're just going to say we're going to, and then you're going to live out the rest of your life in jail. I don't trust our system anymore. I don't. People tell me, well, other survivors don't want the death penalty. And I said, okay, that's fine. So you want to get your way, but I want him dead because my son is afraid he's going to get out. And I want this kid put to death. So the message is sent. You can't just drop a bomb in a crowd of innocent people in America. And if you do, there has to be a consequence for your action. So that's why I want the death penalty. I think it'd be worse for him to sit in jail and suffer than the death penalty. But I want that message to be clear, and I want that message to be sent, saying, if you blow up innocent people in our country, you will be put to death. Mark also shares his frustration when it comes to the media. They cover just for their agenda what they want to push, 
right? Whatever's hot at the moment, the media does. Media time is only very little, right? Like a little amount of time in the day for every story. So they can never really portray what's really going on in that situation. And I don't think they do a great job of it. Most of the people I had interviewed with were pretty good, but you know, there was one channel that, hey, do you want the death penalty? And I was like, no, that would be too easy. I want him tortured. I want him blow his eardrums out of his head, have him go through that surgery. I want to cut off his leg five times, like mine was cut off, and then burn him. I want to burn him, you know? I said, but we can't do that. And I understand that, you know what I mean? I said, so yes, I want the death penalty if that's all I can get. And they used the sound clip saying, we have Boston Marathon bombing survivor Mark Fugel who doesn't want the death penalty. Mark Fugel, do you want the death penalty? And they said, no, cut. So I don't think they did a great job It's been almost a decade since that spring day in 2013, but the impact continues on for Mark and so many others. The other lives that were affected, not just mine, my mom's life was destroyed. My dad's life was destroyed. My brother, disaster. He lost more weight than I did. He was so devastated. My sister, absolutely devastated, like totally separated from their families to be with me. They had young children. They missed like a year of their kids' lives. My brother had to cancel his wedding. Like, all this crazy, none of it was ever really covered or explained on how bad that this kid really affected, not just me, how many other lives he affected. I think that's one of the bigger components of why I'm doing the show is because I think when people stop watching on television, they assume it's over, you know? It's never over. I appreciate you telling me the long-standing impacts. I don't want to diminish it, but besides your physical impact, what's the emotional impact that this has had on you? I do have anxiety. I have my issues. So it's it's the constant reminder, right? I mean, I got my prosthetic leg here. I got to put it on every day. So I'm reminded every day. Like last night, I didn't sleep two hours. The pain in my right leg was so bad. I don't know what. I was taking Tylenol. I was putting Icy Hot on it. I was everything just to try to get the pain, the nerve pain to stop. Um, and then my left foot, I can only weight bear on it for so long. <laughs> I got one guy in the world that can make my brace. <laughs> And he's at Walter Reed, so I gotta go to Maryland. And then I gotta get the approval to the government. That takes a couple months, six months, a month, two months, five months sometimes, depending, you know, what kind of rush they're in to get it done. The red tape is disgusting. I can't get my prosthetic leg anymore, so I'm trying to get around that. I got a new one that's I fall, it doesn't work right, it's horrible. So that longevity of injury, it's it's a constant reminder. And the the effects that it has on my family is tremendous. Like Things I can't do with my son, right? Like I can't go out and just chase baseballs and throw balls. Like my son throws it. I miss it. I'm like, go get it. He has to run and get the ball because I can't. I can't go that far. My leg hurts. You know, this is a lot of things that really affected mine and my son's relationship. I mean, I was able to coach a soccer team. Thank God. I appreciate you putting some energy around that because I think that's something I don't think the people that see things high profile that they ever understand the prolonged effect. You mentioned earlier that... Boston Red Sox came to visit you and other members of the sports world came to visit. Some of the survivors were sort of elevated to this high-profile status in Boston. How did that feel to be put kind of up on a pedestal like that? Was that uncomfortable? Did you relish the moment? What did that feel like? Welcome back, Mark Fucarillo with nurse Ava Quinn, police officer Jimmy Davis, and his best friend, Dave McNeil. I utilized it to give my son an opportunity to do stuff that normal people don't get to do, right? So I kind of like, I enjoyed it, took advantage of it, 
in the sense, not like take advantage of it. There's a lot of times I didn't do things. Like I didn't go on the French cruise that they offered. I was still in the hospital. I was still having surgeries. I couldn't go to some of the concerts. There were a lot of events I couldn't make at the beginning. But it is uncomfortable sometimes being that fish in that fishbowl. But it has also helped so many other people get through things that they're going through, seeing us, seeing us succeed, seeing us back in the spotlight, being like, oh, my God, I remember him. Oh, my God, I remember what they went through. Look how good they're doing. And that kind of gives other people hope and also helps push other people to get out of what they're going through. And, um, yeah, it is difficult at times being put in that spotlight and awkward. But um, I try to enjoy it. I try to use it for what it's for. I try to use it as a platform to show people that, hey, I can get through this, you can get through this. And it gives people the motivation to push through challenges that they're going through. So, yeah, being put up on that pedestal, we were very blessed. I mean, and I count my blessings every day. I'm, I ran out of toes. I ran out of fingers. I can't count anymore how many times I've been blessed by complete strangers, by um, organizations. I mean, the Red Sox organization is so amazing. Like, I could call them right now. And it's, it's the people that work for the organization. Right. I mean, they're just phenomenal. In the face of everything that happened and the horror and the brutality, you're reminded, you know, again, of the humanity, which I think we don't often get to see that up close and center. But speaking of that, I remember being absolutely disgusted with Rolling Stone when they oh, yeah. put him on the cover. They denied an iconic magazine under fire retailers pulling Rolling Stone from the shelves, saying it's one thing to seek out controversial covers, but should they draw a line on accused terrorists? This Rolling Stone cover featuring Jahar Sarnaev with his doe eyes and fashionably unruly mane is being greeted in Boston tonight with a hot blast of anger. What did that feel like to have him be the subject of such weird fascination, like glorified like a rock star? It's a joke. Oh, he had support outside of the courthouse. They were yelling at us, yelling at me. People people were just crazy. Tonight, Rolling Stone is defending its cover, saying the fact that Jahar Sarnayev is young and in the same age group as our readers makes it all the more important for us to examine the complexities of this issue. I mean, look at Rolling Stones. I mean, come on. I don't even... Rolling Stones, I wouldn't spit on that magazine. Through it all, the trauma, the pain, Mark is somehow able to have a clear perspective. My biggest thing with through all this is acceptance. I accept my situation. I accept being in a wheelchair. I accept putting on my prosthetic leg. I accept being an amputee. I think acceptance is... One of the first steps that we have to take when we're kind of moving into a life of advocacy, which I know you do. So can you talk to me a little bit about how you became a motivational speaker and the advocacy work that you do? Oh, I do a lot of different things. I'm always busy doing stuff. So motivational speaking, I love it. I love just being able to touch people and help them in their situations because I was helped and blessed by so many. I was helping others all along. And I always say, like, the energy and the goodness you put out will come back tenfold. You never want it to be because that means you're in a bad situation, right? I didn't want this generosity to come my way. I didn't, please. I did not want anything from anybody, but thank God they did because I needed it and I really needed it. And so my motivational speaking and I do the mentoring with kids with missing limbs and limb differences. I go and visit new amputees in the hospital. Like, So if someone knows somebody, reach out on Facebook, reach out to me. 
on my website. If I can talk to somebody on the phone, like a family member that was in a motorcycle accident, a boat accident, a lawnmower accident, just diabetes, lost their leg, and they're struggling, reach out. Amputees are always willing to talk to other amputees and help people navigate and figure it out. It's so easy to get stuck in a hole, you know, and when you're caught up in the moment, you're not thinking clearly and you just might need a simple set of words. I went skiing, Disabled Sports USA had me out in Breckenridge, Colorado skiing and they asked me if I would take a day away from my family on this trip to do a media day. I said, I'm willing to do it just so if I can reach one person. And to find out, I actually did reach somebody. There was a woman who lost her leg. She had some serious depression and she was sitting on her couch for three years, her brother said, and they had interventions with her and they tried to get her to do stuff. And she was like, nope, all it took was her to see me and say, if he can do it within six months later from his accident, I can do it. And she got up and she started exercising, started kayaking, started hiking. She started doing all this stuff. And he thanked me in the airport. I ran into him and he's like, you don't know me, but I know you. You saved my sister's life. And I was like, oh, my God. What a confirmation that you're on the right path. Yeah, big time. So that's why I like to talk. I like to tell people. And like what you're hearing today is like, oh, my hospital, my stay. Like that stuff is all so small to me compared to all the other bigger visions and the bigger things I do. Like the sled hockey I play and the kids I work with and the veteran organizations I help raise money and fundraise for. And then you know, being able to speak to companies and organizations and people and talk about, you know, I don't just talk about the marathon. It's, you know, it's, it's life stuff. I've, I've been through, I should have been dead 10 times over before the marathon bombing. <laughs> you know, I'm like a cat that never dies. <laughs> Three years after experiencing that horrific day in Boston, Mark returned to the marathon this time as a participant. And let's take a look at Mark Fucrell as he made his triumphant return back into Boston after that grueling 26.2 mile journey in a hand cycle. Was, was that scary for you? Did you have trepidation and to go back? No, nah, I don't fear anything. I truly, one thing about me is after the bombing, I truly don't fear anything. I believe in faith. I believe in what's gonna happen is out of our control. I literally fear nothing, nothing. But let me ask you something. So that's a little, that's opposite of what I thought you were going to say. So going into that day, you had a fear of crowds and you were afraid that anything could happen and you had no control. And oh, I still don't like crowds. Like there's things I'm not comfortable with, but I don't like, I don't fear anything. Being in a crowd is not comfortable. I don't like being bumped. I don't like to be pushed. I get claustrophobic. I have a hard time breathing. I do have anxieties. Okay. But I'm not afraid. Like I really, truly I just don't enjoy it. You get what I mean? Like, it's kind of almost like hypocritical, right? Well, I can imagine not having the fear because you've already experienced such horror that, like, you know you can live through that and you know you can survive that. So that makes sense to me. Yeah, no, I, I just believe, I believe in faith. Like, I really do. And it's taken me a long time to get there in my life. But looking back at my life, I do believe Every incident in my life, my son being born, my son saved my life 100%. I was in a bad spot doing bad, stupid stuff. And when he was born, I said, my son's not gonna grow up being without a dad. And I instantly stopped. He changed my life. That path was set forth. And then right before the marathon bombing, things were happening in my life where there was a directions I could have gone. And I honestly feel that that marathon bomb, you know, that happened for a reason to me and set me in a different direction again. And it led me to my wife now that I have Nicole Browder. You know, I mean, she's 
an amazing person. I never would have met this woman in my life if this didn't happen to me. I'm just, I'm a strong believer in everything happening for a reason. It's written. It's so out of our control. It's not even funny. But with the marathon, I did do it twice. I loved it. I enjoyed it. Bill McCabe, he's a family friend. I graduated with his daughter from high school. He did a marathon in honor of me for every day I was in the hospital. So in my honor, he did a hundred marathons. And he was, he's an older guy, really older guy. And I was like, wow, if this guy can do 100 marathons in my honor. I can at least do one with him. And that's how it started. And I got tied up with Team Achilles, the freedom team of wounded vets. I was like the only non-wounded vet guy. That, well, me, Jessica Kensky, and Patrick Downs. We did these marathons with the freedom team. What an amazing group of guys. What an amazing group of people. And I got hooked. And then I just wanted to inspire people and show people that like, hey, you know, I wasn't supposed to ever walk. Nothing's going to stop me from figuring out life. I did it for my son, too. Don't get me wrong. To show him that you can do anything. You can literally do anything you want to do. I don't care what it is. You can do it. Like, anything. But I did it for my son to show him that nothing can stop you. Just keep doing it. It's just a choice. You make a choice. You do it. And you don't stop until you do it. So on that path of figuring out life, you you mentioned a second ago, your wife and your face lit up a little bit. So I want to know how you met. I don't know if you refer to her as Nikki or Nicole, but I I want to know how you met her. Nikki. I met her. I started Mobility Awareness Resource Community, Mobility Arc, and I started following people with disabilities. I just literally searched wheelchair. And on Instagram, everybody that came up with a wheelchair, just look, fall, 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 fall. So I was trying to get everybody on one page. So they can communicate and tell each other about, hey, I got this wheelchair and helps me this, that, whatever. So I followed this one girl named Nikki. Didn't even know. I just literally, bah, 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 bah. and this girl, Amy, reaches out. And she goes, oh, my God, because she followed my page. And she goes, we have the same mutual friend, this girl, Nikki. She has no arms, no leg, and she's just an amazing person. And I think you should get her to volunteer for the Camp No Limits that you do. So I mentor kids with missing limbs and limb differences around the U.S., I go down to these camps and we mentor the siblings, the parents. And she goes, I think Nikki would be a great fit. I want you to get her involved. And I said, I'll send her a link. What's her name again? Hold it up. I'm like, okay, here, I'm going to send her the link to Camp No Limits and she can check it out. Time goes by. She never replied to me. I thought maybe she looked at the link, talked to the website if she wanted to get involved. So then I was volunteering, mentoring kids in Maine at the Camp No Limits well, she started liking, Nikki started liking all the pictures I was posting of all the kids with missing limbs. So I figured Amy reached out to her. So I reached out to Nikki and said, hey, I noticed you liked the camp pictures. Did Amy, you know, reach out to you? Did you look at the camp? She goes, yeah, no, Amy didn't reach out to me. I looked at the camp. You know, I'm not really, I did the camp thing. I'm kind of shy. I don't, I said, she goes, but I do, I'm interested in the skiing. Like, how does somebody like me go skiing? And I was like, wow, I can't type that <laughs> like that's like a four-day process to explain how a person with no arms and no legs goes skiing so she called me i said this is how that works if you want to go skiing in maine she's like uh, nah i don't want to go because you know, i don't know anybody and i won't be comfortable in that type of environment with the camp like because it's like dormitory like a dorm room and other people are in the room she goes all they have to do is put a pillow over my face and suffocate me and i'm too too nervous yeah, she's crazy. She has no arms. She can't defend anybody off. So I said, you're crazy. I said, I'm doing an event in Texas. When I sent her the link, her girlfriend's got the link. 
and her girlfriend's like, Matthew McConaughey, we're going. <laughs> so all expenses paid, <laughs> they came up, went to the event, and that's how we met her. Wow. And then one thing led to another. Like I was, I, I wanted to be a single dad raising my boy, no interruption with relationships. I wanted nothing to do with Yeah. I was dating, like going on dates and stuff, but I didn't want anything to do with a relationship. And me and her just built this friendship. And then one thing led you know, to the next thing. And then I was like, this girl is unbelievable. She's amazing. And she just stole my heart. That's incredible. Yeah. It was at lunch. The waiter asked, is there anything else I can get you? And she said, yeah, two arms and a leg. And the guy just walked, oh, shoot. the guy walked away. And I was like, wow, you're crazy. <laughs> she's like, my, definitely my people. Oh my God. That's amazing. She sounds like my people too. Yeah. So I want to circle back to the friends that you were with the day of the marathon and has this experience, how has it changed or shaped or connected you since? The main two gentlemen that I was there with were Paul and JP. I grew up with them since I was, geez, elementary school, actually. They were a year younger than me, but my town's only two miles by two miles wide. Was, I mean, my class had like maybe 90 some people in it. So our friendship, we were so close. We were, we were just always close and we're still close. We live life. You know, we don't live life together all the time, but we're close. I'm still friends with, you know, all the people. I have no bad feelings with anybody at the bombing. We get together occasionally. We do events together. We support each other's foundations. Like my buddy JP, I think he does it on purpose. He books these golf tournaments when I'm when I'm <laughs> flying and I'm traveling. It's funny. Um, <laughs> just kidding. He does. He just it just works out. I'm unable to make any of his. Well, I made the last couple events, but no golf tournaments. Mark Fucarell is a perfect example of what Boston Strong really means. His resilience and ability to advocate for others is truly inspiring. His message is one of deep gratitude. What do you want people to know? Like, what's the takeaway? Uh, I was so blessed. And that's why I do it. Because the people that supported me, that didn't know me, that didn't have to support me. I'm so grateful and so thankful for those individuals. I want them to hear how I'm doing. I want them to know what I've been doing since. I want them to know that they changed my life. They helped me be who I am today. And what it always comes down to with me and my speech is it's support that support that they had no idea how much it would impact somebody. And it impacted me so much, they all have no idea. We're all in the same boat trying to do the same thing. We're trying to live a better life, be happy, take care of our family, and just live. And we lose track of that. Everybody gets mad and angry with each other and frustrated. You don't know what people are going through, right? Like, just support each other. So my whole message is, Thank you to all the people that supported me and support each other as much as you can, because that's the only reason I am where I am today. At the time of this recording, Mark also told me he has plans once again to hand cycle the next Boston Marathon, this time to commemorate 10 years since the bombing. I know I'll be watching and cheering for him. To follow Mark's journey and support his work, visit markfigurell.com. To continue the conversation, please follow me on social media at Kim E. Goldman. Media Circus is a cast original podcast, executive produced and hosted by me, Kim Goldman, produced by Jackie McDougall, edited by Jordan Cantor, mixed and mastered by Anton Doty, Harper Carlton as our associate producer. Subscribe to Media Circus wherever you listen to podcasts and please share with a friend.